see all the bulletins flapping. Uh, Ryan Schrock um, reports that Sarah uh, began her labor uh, to give birth to Leah during the sermon last Sunday. Uh, Sheldon, you set a really <laughs> high bar there. Um, and uh, hi, Mindy and Jared, I see you there. And <laughs> I'll, I don't think I have anything to do with this, but um, it would be wonderful if we um, could have round two today. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he had and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. If we were in a more informal setting, it would be interesting to hear what image, or, or for you to say what images are flashing through your mind as you hear these two parables that Jesus spoke. When I first um, began reading them regularly in preparation for today, it was May. First thoughts in my mind were of the followers of uh, Harold Camping, those who sold their gave away, didn't sell, they gave away all their property, they quit their jobs in anticipation of uh, the rapture on May 21st. I thought of Bradley Manning, he's the 23-year-old soldier accused of releasing information about U.S. war crimes to the media. The U.S. military has kept him in solitary confinement for the past year, naked most of the time, and if he's convicted, uh, he will face life in prison. I thought of our own Schuyler Maxey Wirt, <laughs> giving up a delicate days as a Lancaster, in a, uh, a boyhood in a Lancaster community to uh, take on the rigors of ballet training in New York City. These are people who, in my imagination, defy conventional wisdom because they put all their eggs in one basket as it were, and that's what I hear Jesus talking about in these two parables this morning. We know common sense requires that um, we hedge our bets, we spread our risk, we do everything in moderation. And in today's text, Jesus isn't criticizing that, yet he wants us to know that kingdom living starts with a very different premise. So let's take a look. In contrast to Mark and Luke, uh, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. It seems that Matthew meant the same thing as Mark and Luke. If we look at parables like the um, story of the generous sower, where the story is virtually exactly the same, uh, we can see Matthew using the word heaven, Mark and Luke the word um, kingdom of God. So we think they're using the same thing. I won't do the comparison. You can confirm that in your own Bible study. The, the language of kingdom comes straight out of the book of Daniel, chapter 7, 
where the prophet foresaw one like the Son of Man given dominion and glory and kingship. N.T. Wright, the uh, scholar and author who's also a bishop in the Church of England, says that the kingdom of God and the cross were the two primary themes, or are the two primary themes of the Gospels. Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God than any other thing. And his suffering and death on the cross embodied the kingdom more fully than any other moment in his life. We know from our previous study that the disciples often misunderstood Jesus when he talked about the kingdom. At Jesus' ascension, as recorded in the first chapter of Acts, they still thought the kingdom of God was another government. Their very last question to Jesus before he left them was, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? In today's text, we hear Jesus pretty clearly teaching his disciples that the kingdom, at first glance, is a very small and insignificant thing, like a mustard seed. One doesn't hear a government compared to a mustard seed. And that it works quietly inside of society, like creating tiny bubbles of change, like yeast inside bread. My kingdom is not another government, Jesus was teaching them. Alas, for them it went on in one year and out the other. But I think we have misunderstood too, just as badly as the disciples did. We read Jesus' words to Pilate, My kingdom is not from this world, to mean that he was talking about a kingdom in another world. So we push the kingdom of God off into the future, into another time and another space, and that's not what Jesus intended at all. I want to reassure you at this point that I'm not on thin ice here. Our confession of faith, and I'm going to read it, Article 24 is very clear about this. Quote, We affirm that in Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, the time of fulfillment has begun. We believe the church is called to live now according to the kingdom of God, according to the kingdom God will one day establish in full. Both in the present age and in the age to come, the kingdom of God has a political and social aspect. Even in the age to come, it's not a disembodied spiritual entity, but participates in the new earth as well as the new heaven. Close quote. And I think Sheldon said something very similar last week. Well, so what, you might be asking. Well, this teaching that the kingdom has come, albeit incompletely, has shaped us as a church in very fundamental ways. In contrast to many other Christians, we teach here that the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount has authority in our lives, even as impractical as it sometimes seems to us. In contrast to many others, we don't teach the rapture in this congregation. We don't teach that Jesus is going to take us away to another place. We don't look forward to a literal millennium when Jesus will reign on earth. We affirm that Jesus reigns already and that he's already made this earth his home. And that's the testimony of our church, I believe, even on a Sunday after terrorism has inflicted death on nearly 100 innocent Norwegians, and even after the terrorism inflicted on innocent people in Iraq and Afghanistan 
and Pakistan virtually every day of the week. Interesting word, kingdom, don't you think? To me, it means a group of people. It's a political reality. It's a political word. It has authority over people's lives. And it's concerned with how the world works, how things get done, who does them, how problems get solved, how mistakes get corrected. The kingdom meant all those things to the disciples, too. But when they added it up, they couldn't imagine anything but a government. Jesus was aware of their confusion, yet he kept using the same word that confused them so much. Again, I think it was because the word came out of Daniel, and that was often Jesus' text, and it was the image that would help his disciples and help us understand that Jesus was talking about something political that was changing the world. That's what he was about. Well, enough. This is all framing for today's message. What do these stories tell us about being a citizen of the kingdom? In the first parable, we have a man, could be a tenant farmer or a hiker, maybe a heavy equipment operator, someone who has reason to be on somebody else's land. And while he's there, he finds a buried treasure. Could be loot from a long-ago heist, maybe a caravan that lightened its load there. We don't know, but after carefully covering his tracks, um, this treasure is all this man can think about. He knows that the treasure belongs to whoever owns that field, so he sets his mind on buying that field. He sells everything he has, and he buys it. And then the treasure is his. And then we have a merchant who loves beautiful things. I imagine he's an agent, someone who buys and sells precious stones and tapestries and works of art. Wealthy people come to him and ask him to buy things on their behalf, you know, so they'll get a decent price, or to sell things on their behalf. Many beautiful objects pass through his hands. They always belong to somebody else. Most of all, he loves the pearls. Someday, someday I'm going to own the perfect pearl. And then one day a rich man asks him to sell the perfect pearl. The merchant's not a wealthy man, but he sells everything he has, and he buys it himself. Certainly these stories contain joy. I found it. It's mine. I'm so excited. But what strikes me most in these stories is desire. That unruly passion, so closely related to lust and covetousness, that emotion that sends us dashing off on all sorts of dead ends. Jesus is telling us here in these stories that being part of the kingdom of God satisfies a desire so strong and deep that it trumps everything else. Not a little of this and a little of that, you know, a little religion to cover our bases just in case they're right. No, these stories are about a desire that just takes over our lives, that makes everything else seem unimportant, and it's this desire that pulls us into the kingdom of God. As we put ourselves in these stories, um, all sorts of wants and ambitions and dreams probably come to mind. But 
I think this is important. The text isn't about our desires. It's about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and what carries us there. We join up because desire takes us there. And the obvious question is, what desire is this? That's the question our text from Matthew brings us this morning. The kingdom of God. Do we feel compelled to put all our eggs in that basket? Recently, I read a 70th birthday tribute to Bob Dylan, the singer and songwriter. It may be a tangent, and I hope you won't be offended by my including it here, but I was struggling with this question that Matthew brings us, and I found some help in this brief tangent on Dylan's 70th birthday. For my generation, Dylan represents uh, the romantic ideal. Music as the vibrant expression of the self, defiant, heroic, following his passion, always authentic. Dylan never seemed to be hedging his bets. He was all in, all the time. In that sense, he seems to fit within the stories Jesus was telling. And here's what this tribute said that caught my attention, and it's why I'm bringing it to you here this morning. Quote, Dylan's music is not primarily about expressing himself. It's about losing himself and all the confusion, corruption, pettiness, and decay. It's about getting to some place far beyond the self. Dylan gives himself up to the song and to the deeper reality it creates in the few charged moments of its existence. Close quote. So self-expression, passion, authenticity was all visible in Dylan's work, but far beyond any of that, this critic said, was Dylan's desire to be carried by the music. And that brings us close, I think, to what these stories from Matthew are saying. What brings us into the kingdom is a desire to be part of the new humanity that Jesus has begun, to be a participant in this great drama that he's leading, his enactment of God's salvation in the world. The third image in our text is the net full of fishes. Fishes, net full of fish. Okay. It's an image of abundance, of more than enough. To me, it's also an image of surprise, even consternation. We're happy to see what's in the net. We're happy to see it's full, but it's more than we can handle. It's more than we bargained for. How will we ever sort it out? I hear Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And this takes us back, I think, to our great misunderstanding. We push the kingdom into another time and into another space because we have confused it with a state of perfection. We expect the kingdom will smooth every wrinkle and make every crooked place straight. Yet life is such a mixed experience, it's often more than we can handle, even with the strength that we have found in Christ. We're not sure what to keep and what to throw out. It's a little scary to pick out the keepers. 
what with the sharp fins and the snapping jaws. With this little story, I think Jesus is telling us the kingdom of God is not about perfection. It's a mixture of joys and disappointments, of fabulous attractions and daunting challenges. It's not about being in control. It's not about getting all the right fish in the net. Instead, the kingdom of God is finding ourselves in startling situations, almost in spite of ourselves, adventures we didn't plan, could never have anticipated. Sounds kind of messy. Well, so what? We're not being graded. This isn't an audition. It's not a tryout. We've already been chosen. We've already been given a role in this drama. The curtain is up. The gallery is packed. The performance began some time ago already. The script seems kind of sketchy. Everyone seems to be ad-libbing most of the time. So should we join in? Well, Jesus has showed us God's way to live in the world. So yes, let's jump in. I want to be part of this. I can't imagine not being part of this. The Apostle Paul helps us, I think, in the wonderful text that Jay read this morning. First, Paul conveys his delight over what God in Christ has already accomplished. He wrote, Jesus stands first in the line of humanity that God has restored. We see the intended shape of our own lives there in Jesus. In another part of Romans, Paul called Jesus the new Adam. Just think of that for a moment, the new Adam. He's the first of many brothers and sisters who together makes up, and here's another of Paul's phrases, the new humanity, and another one, the new creation. And then, without skipping a beat, Paul goes on to write about Trouble, hard times, hatred, hunger, homelessness, bullying, backstabbing. These images of suffering are there alongside the exaltation, all together, all part of living in the kingdom. The trout and the carp are in the net together. It doesn't surprise Paul. He doesn't feel any need to explain it. It was that way for Jesus, the first Adam, who stood first in line, of the new humanity, it will be that way until the end of time when the angels will sort it all out. <clears throat> one of our, <clears throat> excuse me, one of our pastor's gifts to us in this, our last season with him, has been the weekly praying of the Lord's Prayer. Thank you, Ron. In a few minutes, we'll again pray it together. And I have a question for you. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, are we praying for the end? Are we asking God to bring the curtain down? I know I sometimes pray it that way. And perhaps that's okay. We know from Scripture that at the end of time, as we've known it, 
Heaven and earth will be one, and that will be a glorious time. But I'm a little uneasy praying it that way. Scripture tells us God is not willing for any to perish, yet we're praying for a quick end. Something impatient about that, it seems to me. Maybe even a bit selfish. So I may be wrong, but when we pray, Thy kingdom come, I understand us to be giving voice to the desire that we see in the stories Jesus told. A hunger and a thirst for the world to change, for people to see the way of Jesus and to want it for themselves, and yes, for this same desire to be in our own hearts and to take hold of us there. Because we want his way of being human. We want his way of loving. We want his way of claiming life in this world for the reign of God. May God make it so.